Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we'll feature a special report on the dangers of forced mass migration throughout the Western Hemisphere as the suffering from brutal and violent U.S. immigration policy continues apace. Also, Florida Governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, more brutal than Trump when it comes to immigration policies, really, and any other policies as well. And Academy Award-winning filmmaker Oliver Stone goes nuclear. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. My name is Dennis Bernstein, and we come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. That's the People's Radio Network. We come to you over KPFA here in the Bay Area, uh, and we are proud to be non-commercial, non-corporate, no-holes-barred, truth-to-power, fight-back radio. What a privilege. Again, welcome and welcome to Flashpoints. We're going to start off taking a deep look at the nature of immigration, forced migration, and uh, the sort of the corruption and and the corruption and the violence uh, that now has come to surround uh, what we call U.S. Uh, immigration policy. Uh, these policies have led to all kinds of extraordinary suffering. I mean, for instance, we've uh, reported extensively on what happens, the, the massive deportation of Haitians who left their country based on a failure of U.S. policy and U.S. destabilization policy, uh, forced back into the country by the thousands. And you can see uh, that the Haitians, they, they won't even get off the plane when, once they land back in Port-au-Prince. They know because the, the, the stories precede them about the kind of violence um, that Haitians are facing in deportation. That's just one horrific story of the terrible failure of U.S. immigration policy. And joining us to talk about this and sort of um, talk about uh, regional policy, maybe from what it might look like if it uh, uh, it mattered, if it was uh, respectful of the needs of the region rather than Monroe Doctrine times two. Uh, Adrian Pine, welcome to Flashpoints. I want to tell people that uh, you're a medical anthropologist. Uh, you've previously taught at San Quentin State Prison, UC Berkeley, and American uh, University in Washington, D.C. retired from there 2021 as a associate pro, uh, professor. Uh, and uh, you are, among other things, have written some nice books, co-editor of the uh, just, uh, well, not just published, but uh, Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. Good to have you back with us. Let, let's start with the you know, what do you think we're missing? We're not getting a lot of information. There were meetings uh, by the South American presidents. I'm sure they have some thoughts about uh, where U.S. foreign policy is going and what all this has to do with the future of migration policy. So could you sort of contextualize this? Help us uh, get a frame for, for what's happening. It's certainly violent and terrible for the millions of people fleeing. 
Um, sure. And thank you so much for having me again, Dennis. It's always great to, to be on the program. Um, well, thank there's you. so much to talk about both in terms of the South American summit and, of course, in terms of migration. Um, with migration, there's just so much going on right now, and it's all bad. Um, the important thing to understand <laughs> is that um, is that Biden has basically retra- replaced all of Trump's policies with policies that mirror Trump's policies, and in some cases are worse. So we've gotten rid of Title 42, um, but instead Biden has implemented um, what what asylum workers and asylum experts are calling an asylum ban, um, which effectively means um, what it sounds like. Biden calls it circumvention of lawful pathways, um, but he's... um, circumscribed lawful path what what biden is calling lawful pathways to such an extent that almost nobody can enter the united states even to exercise their international right to seek refuge to um to seek asylum and um and so people um are at the border you've got you know, really tens of thousands of people, some of whom have been waiting for many, many months. They're required to use this this app uh, called CDP1 in order to merely request the privilege of coming to the border to ask for asylum without being jailed. This is something that, that goes against international law. The app is deeply flawed. It only It's only available in three languages, Spanish, English, and Haitian Creole. So anybody who doesn't speak one of those languages is basically screwed. And it also uses racist um, facial recognition t- uh, technology, so it doesn't work on black people. Basically, so there, you know, there are all of these things, and then, and then there are different restrictions for people from different countries. There's a parole program that the Biden administration implemented, which supposedly helps people from Haiti and Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua, except that it really only works for rich people. It works for people who have a passport. They have to also have a sponsor who's willing to pay for all their needs within the United States. They need to be able to fly. Uh, they need to be able to purchase a, a plane ticket to the United States um, and not come through the Mexican, through the southern border. So all of these things are really filtering for class. Um, and, you know, and then it's, it's just the, the system. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's become really terrible. And one of the things, if we're looking at South America in particular, we do have a lot of migrants right now who are at the border who are coming from Venezuela, they're coming from Colombia. Um, and if you, if you really get to the root of why people are coming from those countries, it has very little to do with the national governments and everything to do with U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy toward those countries. So for Venezuela, for example, um, there were no, there was no net out migration in Venezuela. It was a migrant receiving country until 2015, which is when Obama implemented sanctions. And at this point, there are, I believe, um, around 900 sanctions, some insane amount of sanctions that the, that the really? U.S. government has implemented against Venezuela. Yeah, nine, 900 unilateral coercive measures. And what that has meant is that Venezuelans are suffering tremendous economic harm, which also has health consequences, and they're fleeing that U.S. economic warfare. 
Um, and then because the United States uses them as propaganda in this game of regime change, you know, Venezuelans think, well, okay, we're going to get a good reception. But the fact is they are being treated just as terribly as everybody else on the border. Let, and I don't know me, if you want me to couple, get into that. Yeah. Oh, go on. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a couple of things that I definitely want to get you to elaborate on, and we're going to take some time to talk about this stuff because it re the, the information you have is crucial, and I want people to understand more about what's going on. But it is... It is um, correct to say that, I, I consider it a bit diabolical, that the Biden administration used the so-called cancellation of Title 42 and the pandemic restrictions to crack down. It became a major crackdown on immigration rights. Is it? Would that be a proper characterization? Yeah, I, I agree with that characterization, really. There's this um, this idea, I, I mean, I think both parties, they're just trying to out-xenophobe each other, maybe to get the Florida vote for whenever the next presidential election is. But but that's what we're seeing going on right now. So, you know, there's this sort of, it, it, it gets played out as, as a war between Republicans and Democrats, where Democrats think that, that it's actually the party that's respecting migrants because it doesn't say things like what Trump said about Mexicans being racist and, you know, and wanting to build a wall, like the, the, the really explicitly sort of racist, xenophobic stuff that Trump said. But in fact, the policies of the Democratic Party have been just as awful, um, if not worse, in terms of numbers of deportation, the, the, the rate at which they are jailing migrants and, and criminalizing now. I mean, that's one thing that going back to Title VIII, um, with the with the end of Title 42, what Title 42 did is it basically just it bumped people back to Mexico um, using this bogus excuse of public health. Um, the, and this was a program that was put, implemented by Stephen Miller, who is President Trump's white supremacist advisor, as a way to just keep keep asylum seekers out of the country, but they were just bumped back. They weren't criminalized. They weren't entered, anything like that. But with Title VIII, which is what existed prior to Title 42, now migrants who, tr who present themselves at the border to try to seek asylum without having, go having gone through this incredibly cumbersome and difficult um, metering system of the CBP-1 app to request permission to request permission, um, those people are liable to be criminalized. They're liable to be thrown in jail. If they are deported, they're formally deported. They are It's illegal for them to re-enter within five years. So Democrats have, have gone to a system that is making it, um, that is making migrants even more vulnerable than they were under Trump. All right. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with uh, Adrian Pine. She is a co-editor of the uh, the Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. Um, she had uh, an earlier book. Her first book was called Working Hard, Drinking Hard on Violence and Survival in Honduras. And she has done a great deal of teaching and spent a great deal of time on the ground. We met, I think, uh, over a uh, 
whatever was going on there, a U.S.-supported subversion of the democratic government of Honduras where you were uh, sort of um, living in the front line on the ground. Uh, and we've been mm -hmm. following your work ever since. But talk to us. The, the, the presidents, the South American presidents were meeting, I guess, yesterday or uh, on Friday. Um, I'm wondering what that dialogue would sound like and how, you know, could you talk more about where Venezuela comes into this? Because it's confounding. On the one hand, you've got one of the most oil-rich uh, countries in the world, uh, and people are flooding. Maybe a third of the population is on the run. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up this summit last week. It's incredibly important, and it hasn't gotten the coverage here in the United States that um, that it deserves, and I think that that is intentional um, because what it represents really is is South America coming together. All the countries of South, leaders from all the countries of South America met in Brazil, invited by President Lula, um, on on May 30th, um, and and then had meetings in the days surrounding that as well. And this is really the revival of UNASUR, which was uh, um, a body, the, the United South American Nations, that was created by Hugo Chavez and um, and a number of allied leftist governments uh, in 2008, I believe. And it um, and and it was created with the express intent of really pushing back against United States efforts at regime change and imposition of its agenda in South America. It was intended as a way for South American nations to collectively work together to assert their sovereignty and to achieve better situations for the people in those countries. And it um, it really suffered uh, between. Uh, between 2009 with the coup, um, the U.S.-supported uh, coup against Honduras and then multiple other U.S.-supported coups in Paraguay, in Brazil, in Bolivia um, in the following decade, um, UNASUR really sort of fell apart. A lot of the countries left. There was a, like a different, very right-wing alliance that emerged. Um, and now UNASUR has come back. All of these countries came together um, under under President Lula's uh, leadership in Brazil, and um, and they had a very exciting and strong platform. And what this means for Venezuela, it's just impossible to overstate how important this is for Venezuela. I mean, first of all, um, it meant that Venezuela is is once again um, has the strong support of all the South American nations. And I want to stress, even the right-wing South American nations came out with strong statements saying, yes, Venezuela's government is democratically elected and Maduro is the, the legitimate president. And I have to say, I have witnessed Venezuelan elections I have never seen that kind of transparency, um, and I've, you know, I've, I've been an election witness in a number of different countries in Honduras, and I certainly have seen U.S. elections, um, and and it and it certainly merits the um, what what the Carter Center said about it, which is that it was it has the most transparent elections in the world, um, and so for Venezuela to be lifted up by not just Brazil, but all of the countries in Central America um, pushing back against the narrative from the United States, which somehow absurdly Washington 
still to this day, even after the Venezuelan assembly very publicly and expressly um, expelled Juan Guaido from having any part in the opposition, um, Washington still insists that Juan Guaido, this clown who Washington basically appointed as the president of Venezuela in January of 2019 is president. So what you have now with this summit is the entire South America united saying no, you know, this intervention in Venezuela is harming all of us. Lula expressly saying um, in uh, trying to invite Venezuela to join BRICS. And this is incredibly important. BRICS is the, the coalition that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, and, uh, and so Venezuela, and, and immediately, I think, uh, I believe Russia and China um, extended their support for that invitation. This is creating uh, just an incredible level of support for the sovereignty of nations that decide to take a different path from the neoliberal fascism that the United States is attempting to impose on countries around the world. They're also talking about a common currency for South America, like the euro, again, to assert sovereignty against the the right-wing attacks from the United States against these countries. So it's a moment of tremendous hope for, for Venezuelans um, that, you know, they once again will, will be able to... Um, I guess, you know, survive better from this vicious form of economic warfare that the United States is imposing on them and for Central and, uh, sorry, for South Americans more generally who will all benefit from this from this union. Could you talk a little bit more, just sort of unpack a little bit more the phrase neoliberal fascism? What do you mean? I know that's a lot more than rhetoric uh, to you. What does that mean and help us understand how the United States has, still has the hemisphere in a stranglehold. We're still, we've got these nations that we're talking about and the information you're sharing, which we never really hear in the corporate North American press. But um, how, uh, how do we recover from this? How do we uh, understand in a way that the people who watch the people coming up to the border understand how the Americans understand why people are coming? Because until we understand the nature of U.S. foreign policy, destabilization policy, we're lost, right? We have a bunch of stenographers as uh, corporate journalists, and it's not helping. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not. I know that's us, a big. I mean, but this is a struggle. This information, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go on, yeah. please. I'm sorry. And no, and I'm glad you ask about neoliberal fascism because I actually use that term with a lot of thought, um, and that's because you know any any um, form, any ideal form that we refer to, whether we're talking about capitalism or Catholicism or um, uh, um, I mean, in this case, fascism is going to change over time and it's going to be specific to the context that it's in. So if we look at the historic fascism, Spanish fascism wasn't the same as German fascism, wasn't exactly the same as Japanese fascism, but we see common characteristics. And what the argument of people, of those of us who are really proposing neoliberal fascism is, is that 
right now we're existing under a, a different economic regime than the one that powered classic fascism. And yet it is in many really important ways mirroring the structures of classical fascism. So what we see is, um, uh, you know, incredibly sort of chauvinistic and imperialistic states, and of course, especially the United States, which is the center of the unipolar center of empire in the world right now. Um, we see a, a sort of militarism gone completely wild, um, a certain a certain sort of corporatism with with corporations <laughs> really having power in lieu of any sort of democracy. And then, you know, the, there's also the sort of extreme kind of ideological stuff that we see that, that people tend to associate with the Republican Party and the followers of Trump. That's one thing. Um, and, and that's, I would call that ideological fascism. But neoliberal fascism is when a state um, structurally replicates a lot of these classical fascist things um, without, but through processes of neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is, of course, a sort of accelerated capitalism in which everything is becoming privatized, um, in which we've gotten rid of, of all of the regulations that protect labor, that protect um, our health, that protect the environment. Um, and and through doing that, you know, we've ended up with this kind of farce of democracy that's controlled by corporations that um, that ends up mimicking fascism. So if you look at our police forces in the United States, they're entirely militarized. We, you know, we, our our structures are incredibly racist, <laughs> and yet it's not pushed forward through the kind of it's not. We don't have a Mussolini state. You know, we don't have a Franco state. And yet all of these same processes are happening. And it's because our economy and our democracy have been entirely restructured to benefit the the sole interests of, of capital, of the market as as God. And um, and so so in effect, we end up having what looks a lot like fascism, in particular to people who have been historically oppressed and marginalized through racial capitalism in the United States. And, you know, and that's that's the quote unquote democracy that we're exporting around the world. So it's you know, it's where and, and neoliberalism, the main mechanism for the exportation of neoliberalism, our international financial institutions like the World Bank, like the IMF, which oblige countries to get rid of all of the labor protections, the uh, you know, all, all of the regulations that they have in return for getting loans. And so that's the mechanism for implementing what, in effect, um, prevents nations from exercising sovereignty from exercising democratic decisions about how they would like to protect themselves. Um, <laughs> it's a complicated explanation, but that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the. No, no, well, we're, and we're happy to he we're happy to hear. We'll 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 struggle with the complications. Um, I, we just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Adrian. I want you to talk a little bit about the implications. What are the impacts, and how? Is asylum used uh, as a political weapon, and what are the multiple negative impacts of that? 
Oh, asylum is entirely political, unfortunately. And in particular in this country, there are so many ways that it's political. You have judges that are political appointees, and so they are appointed precisely because they have a certain ideology. So if you look at asylum granting rates across the United States, and Syracuse University has a great program tracking this, um, what you see is that you'll have some judges who will deny 98 or 99% of asylum grantees simply because they are, you know, Trump appointees or they're they're just xenophobic, right? But another thing that you see is that judges will systematically across the board um, uh, grant um, asylum. They're more likely to grant asylum to countries that are sort of ideological enemies of the United States. So people from Venezuela are far more likely to get asylum, even though the asylum acceptance rate is still low. I think it's like 30 percent, but they're much more likely than people from Honduras. And I'm talking about when Honduras was living under a U.S.-supported narco dictatorship of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is currently being tried in the Southern District Court of New York for major drug trafficking and weapons charges. Hondurans, despite the fact that they were fleeing a narco dictatorship, because Honduras was a U.S. ally, they were not receiving asylum, and that's because of the it's because of U.S. U.S. foreign policy and judges, in the end, being you know ideologically it being trained by the media, being um, you know appointed by. Hello. I think we lost our guest. Yes. Okay, yeah, we uh, we just dropped down. Um, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacific Radio, and uh, we're talking about uh, uh, asylum and uh, uh, the way in which how detrimental it is to use asylum as a, a political weapon. We're speaking with Adrian Pine, who's terrific on the subject. She's co-editor of the uh, Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration uh, Industry. And we were right uh, in the crux. Uh, Adrian, Professor, are you there? I'm back. Okay, got dropped. Okay, glad to have you back. Um, (laughs) Just, uh, you know, you were, maybe you can pick it up, just back up a little bit and uh, sort of uh, uh, the, the devastating impacts of using asylum as a political weapon. Yeah, I mean, so there are the ways that I've just described that asylum is used as a political weapon um, where, you know, it's really dependent on uh, what what judges' biases are. Um, but then also right now, of course, what we're seeing is, um, is Republican governors in the South playing to their much, their, their most xenophobic bases and making a big show of busing asylum seekers north to places like Washington, D.C., where I live, or New York City, and, uh, Martha's Vineyard, and, uh, flying them to California and, you know, sort of trying to turn it into this war of, well, it's all of you liberals in the North who want these migrants. Will you take them? Um, and, you know, and, and and of course, Democratic governors are not much better than Republican governors, but they're not taking that stance. But what this really points to, and this is something that um, 
that Eric Adams, who I want to be clear, has not at all been welcoming to migrants, but he, as mayor of New York and governor of New York, um, Kathy Hochul, Hochul, um, a a couple weeks ago, held a press conference in which they were pointing out the fact that all of these migrants who have been bused and flown up to New York, if New York is really going to um, respond humanely to um, all of these migrants coming in, that the federal government needs to step up. It shouldn't be a state issue. We need to, um, and and it also should be a political issue. Um, The right to seek asylum is universal. It's international law. United States is a signatory to it. People have a right to seek asylum. And right now, the federal policy is dramatically hindering people's survival in states. It makes it incredibly difficult for people who come in and are seeking asylum to get work permits, for example, which means that they are going to be vulnerable to further violence, that they are going to not be able to find housing, they're not going to be able to legally find employment, they're going to be tremendously exploited, um, and so that renders them vulnerable to crime. And, you know, and meanwhile, you've got, again, people like Eric Adams, um, complaining about this, you know, the, the migrants, and, and then talking about opening up old jails as quote-unquote housing. I mean, talking about opening up Rikers as a shelter. That's not a shelter. That's a jail. And, you know, so really what we need are the the Democrats, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But, like, I don't really believe that the Democrats have any intention to treat migrants humanely. I mean, what we've seen from Kamala Harris, for example, who's been put in charge of telling Central Americans that they will not be welcome here. That was her first act um, abroad as she traveled to Guatemala and said, do not come to people who might seek asylum. Um, So, you know, I I don't really have any hope that Democrats are going to suddenly start caring about the human rights of asylum seekers who are fleeing their own policies. After all, Obama was the deporter in chief when he deported more people than any other president to, to date. And Biden is continuing that legacy. But what we need to fight for, the ideal policy, I believe, would be one that would, you know, really sort of change some of these these issues at a federal level so that so that governors wouldn't be able to politicize it in this absurd way where people who have already been so tremendously victimized by u.s foreign policy are now being victimized by u.s internal absurd um you know two-party battles well it's absolutely disgusting but I do appreciate, um, Adrian Pine, you bringing it to our attention. And our listenership really appreciates the work you have done and do. Co-editor of the uh, uh, Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. Uh, author also of the uh, earlier work, Working Hard, Drinking Hard on Violence and Survival in Honduras. Uh, you do great work. Uh, and... Um, One of these days we're going to spend a lot of time talking about what a medical anthropologist can do for the world. Uh, But right now, (laughs) we just want to thank you uh, and embrace your work. Thanks for being with us again on Flashpoints. Thanks again for having me, Dennis. Our pleasure, as always. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short musical break. Uh, When we come back, uh, our good friend, uh, Harvey Wasserman, is going to 
give us some uh, angry words about how he feels about uh, somebody who's uh, now embracing nuclear power. Stay with us. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. Happy to welcome back to these airwaves uh, some treasured guests. Harvey Wasserman, contributor now to this show, Flashpoints, and does an amazing Monday uh, election election protection gathering, which you all should participate in. There's now usually 50, 75, 100, sometimes more, uh, having a dialogue about how to rescue uh, the elections. Uh, Happy to have you back with us, Harvey Wasserman. Obviously, you're on uh, another flow here. We want to talk to you about that. Also joining us is Linda Seeley. Linda uh, let's begin with you. You are on the front lines of trying to prevent uh, Gavin Newsom from inspiring a, a Diablo Canyon meltdown. Uh, you want to give us sort of the latest update, why you're so committed to this, how dangerous it is and how you're doing? Are you making any progress or are we all still in trouble of losing a good chunk of the coast? Well, both, Dennis. Um we're making good progress, and we're in danger of losing <clears throat> a lot of our coast. So um, what's happening right now, is, oh, we're doing a lot. Uh, I, should I do a little bit of a background? Do, do all of your yes, please. know yeah. about Diablo Yes, please. Set it up again for okay. us. Yes. Okay. Okay. So Diablo Canyon was our last nuclear power plant in California, Avila Beach, California, Central Coast, uh, was supposed to shut down in 2016. It had reached an, the PG&E had reached an agreement with many environmental groups in the state of California, and um, uh, suddenly Gavin Newsom decided last year that he wanted it to stay open again. And there are a lot. There's lots of speculation about why that happened and who influenced him. I think we pretty much know who influenced him because he suddenly decided that he wanted to keep Diablo Canyon open because if we don't have it, we might suffer um, a couple of two-hour blackouts um, in mid-September of next year. Um, So it's worth keeping a nuclear power plant online for an additional, what they said was going to be five years, now has morphed into 20 years for real, 
Um, and uh, Gavin Newsom is still, um, you know, very much on target for keeping Diablo Canyon open, for keeping it open not five more years, but probably 20 more years because PG&E is applying for a 20-year relicensing. So Mothers for Peace, um, San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, who we are the group that's been the legal intervener in um, issues related to safety at Diablo Canyon for the past 50 years since um, we just celebrated our 50th um, anniversary of becoming interveners at Diablo Canyon in May of, I mean, um, uh, 1973. So, yeah. And we're still... That's a long fight, yes. It's a long time, and we still have a couple of our original members, and we are a completely local group. We are an all-volunteer group. Uh, we don't have an office or anything, and we are we have two cases, two um, things that we're going after to shut this plant down. Um, number one um, is our case with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. What happened? What I don't know if I have enough time to tell this, Dennis, because I feel very... You, you, gotta, um, you have to sum it up for now. I think, you know, just the, the, yeah. the key issue, and then we'll give people, uh, you can give people an address and they can follow okay. up. Okay. Mothersforpeace.org um, is our website, and it's updated. It's in good condition. Um, and what we're taking, we're going to the um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission because PG&E is applying for an a extension of the license for 20 years with 10 months between the application and the, the scheduled shutdown of Unit 1. It's an outrage, so we're, going, we're appealing to the Ninth Circuit Court on that, and then we're also going to the California Public Utilities Commission um, about the ridiculousness of the amount of money that... Um, PG&E is getting from the uh, not just the ratepayers but the taxpayers of California uh, to keep this thing open, and it's out of date. It's we've got new seismic information about the seismic vulnerability that is absolutely blood curdling about the reactor vessel of Unit One. This thing is a disaster waiting to happen, and we have to get it closed down. It's not ideological. It's not, you know, there's nothing. Um, right. It's not political. It's we have to get this thing shut down. Linda, it's, how do people get to, um, uh, to your organization? What's the best way to do that? Um, mothersforpeace.org asked to be put on our mailing list. Um, Beautiful. We... Yeah, that's all. Um, we all are right. and very we, and we we appreciate you joining us at the last minute, uh, and yeah, believe me, we're going to come problem, back. Dennis. Okay. Okay. Thank you Be so safe. Much. Okay. You too. All right, and Bye. we're going to take care, and we're going to continue this dialogue uh, uh, with Harvey Wasserman, who's been watching this for us for some time. Harvey, uh, Linda is not happy. This is remains a very dangerous situation, and I think. Uh, 
you have some concern, and others do, in terms of uh, there is sort of a new, uh, if you will, uh, liberal pro-nuclear movement uh, witnessed uh, by, among others, Oliver Stone, who thinks uh, nuclear is the answer to clean energy of the future. And that's getting on well, your nerves, isn't it? Is he wrong? Well, I just... I saw the, uh, Oliver Stone's uh, uh, movie, which I think is coming out today, Nuclear Now, and it's incredibly boring and uh, completely false. And I don't know if Oliver Stone still qualifies as a liberal. The um, uh, nuclear power is a basically fascist form of energy and incredibly dangerous and nowhere more dangerous than at the Avalon Canyon. The, the nuclear reactors at San Luis Obispo are surrounded by earthquake faults. They're pushing 40 years old. I'm sure many of your listeners are driving 40-year-old automobiles. The place is literally falling apart. There was a deal, a very broad, very fair, forward-looking deal cut in 2016 with Jerry Brown, Gavin Newsom, uh, the unions, the, the company, the uh, PUC, the assembly, the legislature, the local governments, the environmental groups, everybody agreed that the Apple Canyon should be shut down in 2024 and 25. And then Newsom suddenly, in, in his run for president and his search for big money from the nuclear industry, reversed uh, in a matter of weeks, strong-armed the legislature. Those two reactors are completely unsafe. They are not maintained. They are very, very old, decrepit. You know, Dennis, when heat, radiation, and pressure uh, attack metals and concrete, the metals and the concrete basically disintegrate. We have a very serious situation of two reactors at the Apple Canyon that are essentially falling apart. And, and Newsom wants to prop them up. He's at the same time is assaulting the solar energy industry in California, cutting the payments that people get for their solar electricity, putting in fees uh, to charge people to have solar panels on their roofs. You know, uh, there are 15, 1,500 uh, workers at Diablo Canyon and 70,000, 70,000 workers in the solar energy industry in California. Why in God's name are they attacking uh, solar energy and giving a billion dollars in taxpayer money to uh, Diablo Canyon. The only reason they could be is that Newsom is getting paid off and that the military wants these reactors for weapons materials and for personnel to keep the nuclear weapons industry uh, going. It's a travesty, and it's very, very dangerous. There is no greater threat to the uh, health and safety of the people of California than the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. And I want to tell you, you know, they use, they, they presume somehow that nuclear power fights global warming. The question you have to ask is, how does a radioactive fire burning at 570 degrees Fahrenheit cool the planet? It's ridiculous. And uh, they're breaking all sorts of state and federal laws, including the NRC's own uh, procedures to keep the reactors going. Uh, it is it is beyond insane, as is this ridiculous movie that Oliver Stone made, which is completely false, uh, has has nothing in it that's true and uh, creates kind of a unicorn picture of the nuclear industry, which is uh, very, very dangerous. 
All right. Well, listen, before we say goodbye, what we just before we got on the air here, I know you were part of the our uh, your weekly um, election uh, protection meeting that has become sort of a, a, a uh, an important weekly meeting in terms of people coming together, organizing to protect uh, the elections and the the vote from disappearing. And it really is a challenge at a lot of different levels. So. Uh, why don't you remind people, uh, tell us, uh, just give us, sum up what happened today. I was there and I learned a lot. Uh, and well, maybe had, how people can participate. We were visited by Governor Don Siegelman, the former governor of Alabama, who was put in jail for six years by Carl Rove to take him out. I mean, it's amazing. We have a private justice system here. And Carl Rove had Don Siegelman thrown in prison to take him out of the running uh, uh, for the presidency and for the governorship of Alabama, uh, which he really controlled. And um, it's uh, an amazing we story. A, We're going to get him on, but go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, so, you know we have to protect hand-marked, digitally scanned paper ballots above all else. California is just as susceptible to election theft as anywhere else, including Alabama. And uh, you know our job is to guarantee that elections are conducted on hand-marked paper ballots and that they're digitally scanned. And that's what we had. We had a 16-year movement, actually, from 2004 in Ohio until the 2020 election. And I guarantee you, had it not been for hand-marked, digitally scanned paper ballots, Donald Trump would still be in the White House. So uh, this is an absolute core of our being, as as is uh, renewable energy. You know, we can have a social democracy in energy if we have rooftop solar, uh, solar panels covering uh, the aqueduct and the canals, um, windmills offshore. We have the total solution to the global warming crisis, but nuclear power stands in the way. It's a military technology, and it's a technology out of control, and we have to vote it out of office. And we're going to have to vote Gavin Newsom out of office because we, he has sold us out. It's a terrible travesty what he's doing at Diablo Canyon. Those two reactors have to be shut, and we have to have hand-marked, hand-counted, uh, digitally scanned paper ballots. That's where it's at, Dennis. Uh, All right. Social democracy All right. at the polling place and in energy. Beautiful. That is Harvey Wasserman. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thank you, Harvey. We'll talk to you soon. Be safe. Thank you, Dennis. Keep in touch. All right. Will do. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take it back to voting in uh, Florida uh, and talk about uh, what uh, DeSantos uh, is up to. This guy is as dangerous as they get. He scares me. He scares me more than Trump. He really does. We'll be right back. Buttons standing. 
Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And uh, we're going to turn our attention back to Florida. You've heard about the governor's run for president. Uh, By the way, he's looking a lot better today than he did yesterday. He's up again in the polls. Uh, Wendy Lederman, we are happy to have you back, contributor from the state of Florida, tracking the fascists as you lose your rights one by one. Um, Wendy, uh, there's a lot going on on the ground, uh, and uh, there's a lot having to do with migration, immigration. He's become famous as the gov who lies to people, puts them on a plane, sends them halfway across or all the way across the country uh, so that they can suffer a little more even after they've been suffering for weeks and months of traveling to stay alive. Um, could you uh, tell us, you know, we don't hear a lot about uh, the governor's uh, frontline policies there on the, gl- on the ground. There was a, uh, some activity. There, were, um, there was a, a, like a national day of, for the immigrants. Uh, how were, how's um, your governor there doing in terms of his immigration policy? We know he's putting a lot of folks on planes. Yeah, um, I mean, thank you again for um, for having me back. It's always great to be with you. Sure. Um, so, <laughs> thanks. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, and keep in mind that um, there was so much effort by the Republicans to gain the Latin vote. You know, they're really good at, at organizing and going out into the communities and convincing people that there's someone on their side by speaking the language. And... They, I mean, in just a matter of months since this last election, I mean, have completely sold them upriver. I mean, it's very, it's almost cannibalistic where they're just like eating their own, where you have even representatives that came here as immigrants, as children, and were, had, had a fair path to citizenship, and they, they refused to give that to anyone else. And so um, they're really losing a lot of their base. And you're right, there's there's fascism on the ground, in the air, by sea, in in the state of mind. Um, and, you know, we had this, this last session, just this tsunami. I can't even say it a wave. I mean, it was just tsunami after tsunami, like thousands of just fascist bills. There's no other way around it. You know, I'm not representing any of the other groups that I'm with right now that are completely bipartisan. So I'll agree with you that, I mean, DeSantis really frightens me more than than Trump does because he's so calculated and he just seems to have absolutely like no empathy or compassion. You know, there were reports that he was torturing people at Guantanamo Bay when he was in the Navy, but I digress with that, but that just shows the mentality that we're dealing with. And, um, so, yes, we had a, a day without immigrants on um, June 2nd. So I think that was Friday. And thousands of people in the street in, like, seven cities. And it was nationwide, but it was seven cities in Florida. Um, thousands of people chanting Si Se Puede, walking out um, from their work. And even the workplaces are supporting them. I mean, you have, like, restaurants and businesses that are losing thousands of dollars a day voluntarily. Like, they're supporting their employees to get out in the street and a lot of people you know there there's these mass migrations leaving the state and then there's like truckers boycotting anyone coming in here and boycotts on the products um and migrant workers are, are leaving so you have like fruit rotting 
fruit and vegetables rotting on the vine because, like, you have, you know, um, Americans, white people trying to go in and do the jobs, and they quit halfway through the day because, <laughs> you know, the jobs right. that were stolen from them, <laughs> you know, obviously, now they now we know they don't want to do it. Um, you know, for, for the last month, construction sites have been sitting um, empty pretty much because um, some of the there, – there were – Two major bills. There's one seventeen eighteen that was passed um, and signed. Um, it goes into effect July first. Um, and then there's another one that you mentioned, the migrants, and I'll, I'll get to that too. Um, where the the program where he was basically like it, it's basically state state sanctioned kidnapping, where he's sending flying people out, and it's like illegal. But now it's a twelve million dollar program. Um, and there was actually, I'll just really quick on on that note. Um, I found something today. Is, um, Repu- uh, Representative Anna Escamani, I have to give her a lot of credit, um, progressive candidate or legislator out of Orlando who's just been really fighting for the people on all issues. I mean, she's really been, like, standout, um, fantastic work. And she had posted about how um, Larry O'Keefe is the public safety czar, and he was caught using his personal email in talks with an ex-client of his over contracts for this new flight program. So that that's an interesting piece of information. So that's that's one one law that was signed where it's now like okay and it's legal to to send people out of state and fly them out based on lies like places that they don't even know where they're going. And the the on the, the governor's website he says it's to prevent human smuggling and other crimes. <laughs> like the irony is just, I mean, do they believe this stuff? And so the other um, 1718 that was signed into law, I mean, this is, I mean, the, like the most racist law, like legislation that we've seen in, in modern times and anyone in my generation, has, I mean, it, it, it it's a felony to transport someone into the state. If you um, are undocumented and have a driver's license in another state, it's not valid here. Um, if you go to a hospital, they're going to ask you your, your status so people aren't going to go to the hospitals. If you have a, a company that has more than 25 employees, you have to sign up for an e-verify system to make sure that everyone is documented. And you're, you're never going to hear them talk about Cuba being on the terrorist watch list and the sanctions. And, and that's just Cuba because we're, we're so close to it. But, you know, what's driving this crisis? Nobody will ever mention that, but we'll just criminalize um, and just make it a felony. There was one thing that was um, that was going to be in the bill and it got taken out because all the faith groups um, gathered around it, but they were going to make it a felony to just drive or house an undocumented person. Like if you were caught with like your husband or your wife, in the car with you or in your house and they're undocumented you go to jail for like years so they they strip that out but that's what they're they're trying to do and it's just i mean yeah it is amazing that that the naacp has put out a a major warning a travel warning about traveling to florida based on these Mm -hmm. policies that we're talking about just thought i'd throw that in i mean that's huge when is the last time we saw anything like that yeah, exactly. And um and even just boycotting our products. I mean, it's like on on the street like when I'm here and I'm actually I live in a very very highly Cuban populated area. I'm not seeing as many large Trump banners and DeSantis banners as I was a few months back. Um so like where I am, um it's on the day-to-day it, like I'm not 
seeing as much hateful stuff, but I'm not in like the like see Florida should be really like two states, like South Florida, which starts kind of like below like Okeechobee or and Orlando is like central, and then above that it's North Florida, and it's it's really a lot different. It's rural. It's really like Bible Belt and super conservative, and in the South, um, generally more progressive and um more liberal. It's, it's just it's a little different. So um that there you know that there's a lot of hate i'm I'm hearing a lot of reports from other parts of the state where i mean and even and it and a lot of like the latinos are also it's kind of teamed up a little bit with the hate that's being projected onto um homosexuals right now and trans and kids and even like the book bans um going on that even if you just like mention it there's like books about Rosa Parks or like books that have just mention a gay person and they're being like you hear fourth graders complaining that they have nothing to read because <laughs> they like and they're like they, they understand that it's wrong and then you have like school board members like outright saying when there's meetings like how how disappointed there are that they're like quote like so many gay people in the audience or like to paraphrase that um so it's like it's it's a it's a bubbling point it, it's and it, it's hard being here. It, it, it's like I'm from here, so just seeing this transformation happen is—it's just really surreal. Because you know the hate is there; it's right under the surface. And then just the fear. I mean, these are human beings, and they're being criminalized by this minority. And keep in mind, DeSantis redrew the maps that were supposed that the legislature drew that was um, got Supreme Court, state Supreme Court review. DeSantis is like, no, I don't like them. And he drew new congressional maps to give 20 red districts and eight blue districts. So, wow. yeah, we've seen a lot of influx. But, yeah, I mean, how could we really say that it's not a minority rule, that this is really the will of the people? Yes, it, it is. Yes, it is. Listen, we are out of time, uh, but I want to let people know we've been speaking with our contributor, Wendy Litterman, and uh, she is environmental social justice advocate, founder and administrator of Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale, I'm sorry, Fort Lauderdale Water Crisis Community Forum on Facebook, ambassador to the Florida Right to Clean Water campaign, and a whole bunch of other things. Thank you for joining <laughs> us again on Flash. Points, Wendy. Thank Be you, safe. Dennis. And just if I have ten seconds, I just want to say these people pay taxes, yes. and and that's it. it. And they're treated like this, and they pay taxes. And they website. How do people Thank follow you. your work? How can they follow you? Website. Um, I, uh, the Fort Lauderdale Water Crisis Community Forum on Facebook, and also Harvey Wasserman's call, the Green Grassroots Election Protection Coalition. I'm a part of that. And hopefully I'll be back soon to talk with you. So thank you. Adios. Bye bye. Bye bye.